seated. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. Good to see so many of you in the middle of holiday time. Well, most of our regulars, I think, would be aware that uh, January is normally free topic month for preaching. Uh, we're not following any particular series at this time of the year, and the pastors get to preach on issues that are near to their hearts. Now, having taken a few weeks off over January, this one might be my only opportunity for the whole year to get a free topic. Um, so I have thought long and hard about what I would like to say this morning and how I could best use that opportunity. And this morning I want to address something that concerns me because it affects the way that we relate to God, it affects the way that we relate to one another, and therefore it affects the impact that we will have in this world for his kingdom. Increasingly in our culture, the definition of worship is narrowing. It is narrowing to become equal to the definition of singing. Worship has become the same as singing in many people's minds. And whilst I think many of us here are aware that worship has a much broader definition than that, all of us inadvertently reinforce that perception and that definition when we use phrases like we are now going to enter into a time of worship when we're handing over to the song leader or let's stand together and worship when what we're about to do is sing and if you hear that enough as a new Christian or if you hear that enough times as a child growing up in the church, it is natural that in your mind worship will equal singing, particularly if you hear phrases like those phrases in no other context. You will assume that singing is all there is to worship. Now, singing is worship, so it's not wrong to say that we're going to enter into a time of worship, but singing is certainly not all there is to worship. And that is what I want to explore with you this morning. There are a number of problems that a practical theology that equates singing with worship arise. Equating singing solely with worship is dangerous for a number of reasons, three that I can think of. Firstly, it limits our worship to around about 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, give or take a little bit, depending on your denomination. Secondly, it isolates worship from every other part of our life. We come and we worship when we're in church for 20 minutes on Sunday and for the rest of the week we are doing something else. Finally, where does it leave those people who don't really enjoy music or singing? It kind of leaves them in a spiritual no man's land. These people may well love God wholeheartedly. They may well give their heart and soul to serving God. They may well 
live out the words of many of the songs that are sung on a Sunday morning, perhaps even more so than some of those who are singing them most enthusiastically. But because they're not opening and closing their mouths, the rest of us feel like something's wrong. And they're made to feel like something is wrong. What are such people to do? Should they just pretend that they enjoy singing? Should they do that so that they can fit everyone else's definition of worship? Or should the rest of us broaden our definition of worship and accept that the same God who made each one of us unique is well able to accept many different forms of worship from his many different children. Now, you don't have to work your way very far into the Bible before you come across acts of worship. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel bring their offerings, the fruits of the soil and the firstborn from the flocks, and they bring them to the Lord. There was no singing. At least there's no singing recorded in that account. What they were doing was offering gifts to the Lord. One gift was pleasing and honouring to God and the other was not. The difference was in the motivation and the attitude in the heart of the believer. Abel's gift honoured and glorified God because he generously gave of the best of his flocks, the firstborn. His gift recognised God's worth. And that's what worship means. It derives from two old English words, one which means worth and the other which means shape or quality. So in the same way that friendship is the quality of being a friend, Worship is the quality of having worth. So when we are worshipping, we are saying that God has worth. He is worthy. So worship is a good way of thinking about the word worship. And what we learn from this story is that motivation and attitude of the heart are important in worship. Whatever form our worship takes, it must be motivated by an overwhelming desire to honour and to glorify God because that will demonstrate his great worth. And if that isn't the driving force behind our worship, if we're doing it out of duty, if we're doing it out of habit, or if we're doing it perhaps for some sort of emotional feel good for ourself, then it isn't worship, no matter how much it might look like worship. The actual word worship, the translated the English word worship, doesn't appear until Genesis chapter 22. After travelling for three days and with Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham had been told to go in sight. Abraham turns to his servants and he says to them, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy, his 
beloved son, Isaac, go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Now, they weren't going up the mountain to sing or to make music. Abraham was going up the mountain to demonstrate God's worth by offering his most sought after, most treasured son, Isaac. And Isaac was going up the mountain to offer himself. What we learn from Abraham and Isaac is that worship is an act of obedience. And it's an act of obedience that sometimes can be costly, very costly. King David understood that when he refused to take the land offered to him to buy an altar to make the offerings that he wanted to make on behalf of himself and the nation. Instead, he paid for it and he paid for the oxen, for the sacrifices, refusing to offer to God anything that cost him nothing. And it makes me wonder how far removed we in our culture have become when so often the primary motivation for our worship seems not to be what can I give, but what will I get out of it? What will it do for me? How will it make me feel? Will the style of music be to my liking? Not only does our worship often cost us nothing, but we actually expect to be the primary beneficiaries from it. And in doing so, we turn something beautiful and God-honouring into just another consumer product. Now, whilst Genesis 22 is the first mention of the word worship in our English Bibles, it is not the first use of the Hebrew word that is translated into English as worship. That appears a couple of chapters before in Genesis 18, chapter 2. There it refers to bowing. So this is the account of the three visitors that Abraham had uh, when he saw the Lord. The Lord appeared to Abraham, says that account. Abraham looked up and saw three men. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them. And he bowed low to the ground, begging the Lord not to pass by. So that same Hebrew word, which is translated elsewhere as worship here and in many other places, is translated as bowed. It teaches us that worship has a lot to do with reverence and with humility. Abraham was a wealthy and capable man. Yet he fell to the ground reverent and humble before his Lord. And we must ask ourselves today whether our worship reflects that same attitude of heart. Jesus' best known teaching on worship comes from his encounter with the Samaritan woman. 
Uh, he meets her at the well and he seems to know everything about her. And so she ventures to ask him a question. Now many of you have heard this story before. You know that she shouldn't have been there at the well in the heat of the day. You know that he shouldn't have been speaking with her because she was a woman and she was on her own and also because she was a Samaritan and the Jews and the Samaritans had much animosity between them. We're going to pick up this story which delivers a profound teaching on worship from the point of her question which comes in John chapter 4 starting from verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now the issue that she'd raised with him here was that of where to worship. But Jesus wants her to know that where you worship is not the important thing that she needs to know. There are a couple of things that he wants her to know about worship. The first of these concerns the one whom they sought to worship. Because the Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except for their version of the first five books, their knowledge of God was incomplete. It was inadequate. They could not worship in truth because they did not accept the truth. And therefore they couldn't have a true perception of the one that they sought to worship. Jesus goes on to say, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is saying it's not good enough simply to know the truth about God. True worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. In fact, since God is spirit, true worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth, he says. Now, many consider spirit and truth here to be like head and heart, knowledge and emotion, or sound doctrine and emotion. And we all know the perils of being too far invested at one or the other end of that spectrum. All doctrine and no emotion is like a very deep waterhole. 
it is cold and uninviting and only a hardened swimmer can cope in there for any longer than just a very short time. Strong emotion, on the other hand, without sound doctrine, is like the shallows on the beach. Everyone loves to jump in and have a splash around because it makes you feel great. But no one ever learns to swim there. You can't swim there because the water's not deep enough. It's only ankle deep. These words of Jesus, this command to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, that's how they're often explained in terms of getting the balance right between doctrine and emotion or heart and head. And usually in terms relating to our singing in church or, or to the way that we come together in church, the teaching and the emotion of the songs. But I suspect that there's more to it than that. And I think maybe the translators of the newest edition of the NIV probably also suspect that there is more to it than that because they have gone so far as to separate themselves from just about every other English translation by inserting the word the before spirit and capitalising the S on the spirit. They translate this verse, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and truth. I'm going to try and demonstrate where I'm going with this, with an analogy. And you're going to have to bear with me with this analogy because we'll get there eventually, but it probably won't be clear what I'm getting at until we get to the end. It's going to seem a little bit obtuse at first. We own one of these, a spit roast. Probably some of you do as well. Often in our household, when we have a large gathering, this thing is dragged out of the shed because everyone seems to enjoy a spit roast, except me, because I'm vegetarian. <laughs> now, the issue, of course, with a spit roast is it's not like an oven. You don't just turn it on and put the meat in and wait for it to cook. You have to light a fire and you have to get the coals nice and red hot before anything's going to happen. And you have to be prepared and get this done early enough because it takes about three hours to roast the meat nicely and slowly on a spit roast. Now this is the part that Bruce and I struggle with. Somewhere along the lines, the caveman genetics is not in our line anymore. It's been bred out. And neither of us are very good at starting fires, which is a problem because it's kind of critical to the whole process of cooking in this way. And we have had many, many very stressful times where we've smoked out the neighbours on either side. We've huffed and we've puffed. We've desperately fanned at this thing for half an hour with whatever we could find to fan it. But in the end, after all the smoke cleared, sadly, there was no fire. We have tried every fire starter that is available at Bunnings. We've tried the little polystyrene looking ones that you snap apart, 
You put the little squares in and you tuck them in. We've tried the ones that you pop out of the individual packages. We've tried the ones that come in a squirter bottle, like dishwashing detergent, and you squirt it. And we've actually squirted a whole bottle of this stuff all through the thing. It stunk when it set on fire. All of these fire starters worked magnificently. There was roaring flames. And then they died down to nothing. And there was no fire in the coals at all. Occasionally, We've tasted success and we've seen some glowing coals and we've walked away prematurely only to return half an hour later to find cold coals and cold meat spinning over the coals. Now, this is very stressful if you've got 30 people coming over for dinner and you're watching precious cooking time ticking away while you're trying to madly fan the flames. And this was an ongoing problem for us and we almost gave up with the spit roasting idea until one day Bruce was sent on a desperate trip to Bunnings. We'd spent about 45 minutes trying to get this thing going. We had people coming, we had promised them a spit roast and nothing was happening. And I think one of the employees at Bunnings must have sensed the desperation in his eyes and he introduced him to one of these things a charcoal chimney, some of you know. We didn't know that this is what you were supposed to do. We thought you were supposed to light it in the thing. Well, Bruce was sceptical, but he was desperate enough to try anything, so he brought this thing home. And I was even more sceptical when I saw what looked like a giant metal mug with holes in it. And I was still more sceptical when I found out that what you do with this thing is exactly what you do with the other thing. Just put the stuff in, put the fire lighter in and light it. How is that going to work? Well, for reasons that I cannot really explain, except that it has something mysterious to do with airflow, the thing just takes off with fire. And you have glowing hot coals ready to pour back into your roaster. You do exactly the same thing with the two vessels. One sits there dormant doing nothing and the other one gives you a red hot fire. That, to me, is the type of difference that the Holy Spirit makes to our worship. All the truth and all the emotion in the world will fail to produce true worship when the vessel is just the human spirit. But change the vessel and those same ingredients will glow with a red-hot flame. When the spirit of man is transformed by the Holy Spirit of God, then and only then will the red-hot flame of true worship burn bright. Just to round out the story, we have on many occasions now actually been able to get the thing to work and to master the spit roast. So what then is the heart of worship? The very heart of worship, as the Bible makes clear, says R.C. Sproul, a well-known theologian, is the business of expressing from the depths of our spirit the highest possible honour that we can offer before God. It is our heartfelt response that comes from truly knowing God and I believe it can be expressed in many different ways. As 
the Holy Spirit leads and enables and interacts with the individual gifts, talents and personalities of each believer. For some, the most authentic form of worship might well be silence. Silence as they comprehend the awesomeness of God. To appreciate one's smallness and fragility before a mighty God and to sit humbly before him in silent, reverent adoration of his great, great worth. Surely that is an authentic form of worship, as authentic as anything anyone could possibly sing. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. How often do you consciously do that? For others, tears may indicate their sacrifice of brokenness as they realise the extent of their own sinfulness and of the Saviour's great sacrifice for them. Those tears are as true a statement of God's great worth as anything anyone could say or sing. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Some of us will be so overwhelmed with sheer joy that it just bursts out of us, maybe in the form of dancing. And many of you will remember uh, the story of King David bringing the ark back and how he danced before the ark. Psalm 149, three to four, let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel and harp. For others, music is the best way for them to demonstrate God's great worth. They might have a talent to play a particular instrument and that talent is enlivened by the spirit as they direct their talents towards praising God. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and make melody to him with a harp of ten strings, says Psalm 33, 2. Many of us love to express God's worth with words. Now they could be written words or spoken words. They might be written words that nobody else even sees. It's just between you and God. Or they could be words that are shared with other people. They might be words spoken in prayer. And of course, that most well-known form of worship, words spoken or sung in song. Psalm 68, 4, sing to God, sing praise to his name. Now, what that looks like can take on a whole variety of forms. Could be anything from two people singing in prison. We read that in the Bible. That was worship to the great roar of thousands singing together, concert style. We are all different, 
And so we should expect that there will be many different forms of expression, and you see some of them up there. People dressed in choir gowns, singing in a very formal style, others very freely with hands in the air. All different forms of doing the same thing. As long as we remember what really matters, as long as the motivation and attitude of the heart are right, as long as what we're doing is in obedience, with reverence and humility, and as long as it demonstrates God's worth. And it is possible to tick all of those boxes for any of those styles that you see up there. Equally, it is possible for those not to be present and for that worship to be just going through the motions in a very artificial way. For some people, worship flows from them most naturally when they are out in nature. And it's no secret that that's probably the way that I lean more than anything else. Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. For others, tradition, rituals, symbols and sacraments are the fuel for their expression of worship. They find a depth and appreciate the history in liturgy and in structure and in ritual and these things bring out a depth and a discipline to their personal spiritual lives. That is how they best live their lives, to demonstrate God's worth. And in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2, the Apostle Paul commends the Corinthian church for maintaining the traditions that he had delivered to them. Some are more contemplative, like Mary of Bethany, sitting at the feet of Jesus, drinking in his words, thinking deeply upon them, seeking to apply them to their own lives. This act of deep thought, of pondering the things of God, that in itself demonstrates his worth and is a form of worship. And then there are those who like to serve, who demonstrate God's worth by loving what he loves and taking care of what he has created. Mother Teresa has said the highest form of worship is to find the least among you and treat them like Jesus. And there are many scriptures that indicate how important these things are to God, including the one up there, Micah 6. There are many, many ways to worship and uh, we don't have time to cover them all here. I've just given you a little bit of a taste. And if you think through the list that has been presented to you, uh, you will find that many of them can be found in the life of King David. Stillness, brokenness, dancing, music, song, nature, tradition, contemplation and service. At the heart of worship is God's own heart and King David was said to be a man after God's own heart. The more we immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word, the more we get to know God, the more we know this one who is all truth. The more we know him, 
the more we will understand and comprehend his true worth. And the more we comprehend his worth, the more naturally worship in all of its forms will flow from us. Let me close with this scripture, which I think brings much of this together. Ephesians 5, 8 to 10. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So the Holy Spirit has made you a transformed vessel, no longer in darkness, now light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. So burn brightly for God, like the coals in that charcoal chimney. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Really get to know what pleases him. And then do it. Do what pleases him. Do it motivated by love and gratitude. Do it obediently. Do it reverently and with humility. And then you will be demonstrating his true worth. And that is the heart of worship. I'm sure by now, many of you could probably hazard a very good guess at the song that I've chosen to close off today. Anyone want to hazard a guess? That's right, we're going to sing The Heart of Worship. Thanks, Chris. <laughs>